0: I recently read an article that encouraged followers of Jesus to reflect on their spiritual journey and to think back on some of the factors that have caused them to grow in their faith. And I found this to be a very helpful exercise, and so I want to ask you right now uh, to reflect on some of this. So for you, what are some of the things that have been instrumental in growing your faith? Now, let me help you a little bit with this. Maybe for you, it was taking that step to serve others. And it may have been serving in kid ministry or a different uh, serving opportunity inside the walls of our church, but maybe it was serving outside of our church, in in our community, and it was through this serving that your faith really grew. Or perhaps it was putting some spiritual practices into your life. You made that commitment to consistently uh, read the Bible, to pray, and it was through these disciplines that your experience with God became more intimate and your relationship with God grew. Or perhaps it was taking that step of connecting with a small group of people outside of the Sunday morning gathering, the worship gathering. And it's been through those relationships that the, the one another's of the New Testament have really come alive. Those one another commands that we see that we're to love one another, that we're to encourage one another, we're to, to build up one another. And so, with this small group of people, maybe it's a program at our church, maybe you just took that step to say to some of your friends, hey, let's get together. And as you've lived in this community with them, it's been extremely vital to your faith. Or it might be for you, it was a pivotal circumstance in your life. You were given an opportunity to lead, and it was through that circumstance that really shaped where you're at today. Or maybe it was much more dramatic and painful you hit rock bottom in your marriage. Maybe you hit rock bottom in your career. There was an unexpected tragedy that shook your world. And it was through that pivotal circumstance that your faith grew. And to be honest, it had to grow or it wasn't going to make it. And so this is a a good exercise to reflect on how God has grown our faith and has grown our commitment to him. And as I was doing this, I was thinking about some pivotal circumstances in my life. When I was around 30 years of age, I was uh, given an opportunity to lead in a a church we attended at the time. And really, that kind of spurred me to to actually where I am today. There was a time where I put more of those spiritual practices into my life. I was listening to a lot of sermon podcasts, and and this really helped grow my faith. But as I kept reflecting, I realized that when I have grown the most— It's actually when Christ, and I struggle a little bit with how to say this, but Christ was made most beautiful. Where I've seen the beauty and experienced the the beauty and the glory of Christ, of who Christ is and what he has done for me. And I wish these times were, were longer stretches, but it's been in those moments or in those seasons where Christ has been exalted, where he's been lifted up that I've grown the most. And so I ask you, has that been your experience? I know for many of you, it has, that when Christ was lifted up in your own eyes, this is why you wanted to serve. That was your motivation, where before you were were so scared to share your faith, to share the gospel, invite that friend to church. But because Christ was lifted up, because you were experiencing in your own heart what, what he was doing, you wanted to share that with someone else. And so it was because Christ was beautiful. That was your motivation. But here's my experience, and I I imagine you've had this as well. As one hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And So in those moments where we clearly see the beauty of Christ, it can be diminished when we shift our gaze from who he is, or when we begin to drift away from him. And this is what is happening with these Colossian believers. Paul had not met most of them, but he had heard reports of their faith that they had come uh, to, to know Christ, that they had received new life in Christ, that they had seen the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. Their lives had been transformed, but then they began to be tempted to drift away. They were being pulled by other things. They wanted to add things to their faith. And when Paul hears this, he writes to them and he says to them, I continually pray for you to grow in your faith. But what's interesting is that Paul doesn't give them this long list of things to do. He'll get to some of that application later. But what he does after saying, I'm praying for you continually to grow in your faith, he then moves to Christ. He wants them to see the beauty, the supremacy of Christ Jesus. And he wants us to do the same. He wants us to see who Christ is, the supremacy of Christ in our life to help grow and mature us as followers of Jesus. And so, as we begin, we start with verses 15 to 17, and we'll break it up this way. We first see the supremacy, or where Jesus is Lord over creation. Look with me at verse 15. The Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, have you ever thought to yourself, why doesn't God who is invisible just reveal himself? You know, maybe something in the sky, some, some manifestation of God. Just to make it a little more clear, have you ever, have you ever thought something like that? You know, Jesus' disciples asked something similar. In the Gospel of John in chapter 14, Jesus is meeting with his 12 disciples, which were his closest friends. And the setting in John chapter 14 is that Jesus is about to be arrested, put on trial, and then be crucified. And so he's kind of having these final instructions to them. And his disciples have been with him in his three-year public ministry for most of that time. And Jesus, again, giving these final instructions before he's crucified, is asked by one of his disciples, this man named Philip, And I imagine he was really speaking what the rest of the disciples were feeling. And he says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus, show us God, Philip says, and it will be enough for us. And here's Jesus replying. I think this was really a bit of a rebuke to Philip. And Jesus responds, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. See, we may be asking God, I want to know what you're like. God, what, what are you like? Who, who are you? And what Jesus says in the Gospel of John and what Paul is saying here in Colossians is that Jesus Christ reveals God. Amen. That Jesus makes visible that which is invisible. This Greek word for image is icon. And icon means copy or likeness. Jesus Christ is the perfect image the exact likeness of God. He is in the very form of God. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul will continue and he says this of Jesus that Jesus is the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And then coming back to our passage in verse 19, Paul says this of Jesus for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All this fullness, that is, dwell in Christ bodily. And so what this means is that Jesus is truly man and truly God, fully man and fully God. And so if there was any confusions or misunderstanding that these Colossians believers had or that you may have, it is cleared up by looking to Jesus. For us to understand who God is and what he is like, we look to Jesus as found in the pages of scripture. Now, Paul, he includes a phrase in verse 15 that needs some explaining. And it's this phrase, the firstborn of creation, because this can sound like Jesus was the first created being. And there are other religions such as Jehovah's Witnesses or or Mormonism that hold to this. And so in our community, we can have a fairly large Mormon population. Maybe you grew up yourself and they may point to this passage in Colossians. And so you need to have an answer. You need to be able to speak to them about this. So there's some things we need to walk through. First of all, we need to recognize that this term firstborn doesn't have to just mean firstborn such as a a child who was born first, you know, chronologically. It can mean this, but this term can also refer, as it does here in our passage, to rank, to position. So let me give you an example found in Psalm 89. This is speaking of the second king of the nation of Israel, King David. And it says this in Psalm 89, 27. And I, and this is God speaking, will appoint him, that is David, to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. Now, was David the firstborn person in humanity? Of course not. In fact, David was the youngest in his own family. But what the psalm is pointing to is that this term firstborn is a title of rank, that David is the firstborn, meaning he is the most exalted king in the earth because God is establishing his covenant with David, that the Messiah would come through his line. And so what we have here in our passage is that this phrase firstborn of creation is a title for Christ, that he is the preeminent one that he is the supreme one. He is creator and Lord over all Amen. creation. Amen. And this becomes even more apparent as we continue on to verse 16, where we find that all things in creation were created by him and through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is the one who sustains everything. I mean, what an amazing statement when we think of the design and the complexity and how expansive our world and universe really is. Let me share just one uh, example of how expansive our universe is that we, that we live in. So earlier this week, I came across this comment, uh, comment about the universe, and that in our universe, it was said that there are 2 trillion galaxies, okay? So 2 trillion. Now, that's a lot of galaxies. I'm thinking, I, I, don't know. I don't know about this. So I did a little research, all right? So I want you to look at the screen. All right, see that picture of that image there? This image is called the Hubble Extreme Deep Field. And within this image that you're looking at right here, and I realize it's a little hard to see, but there are 5,500 galaxies. But here's the thing with this image. It takes up just one 32 millionth of the total sky. I don't even really know what that means, all right? <laughs> it just means it's very tiny. Just a tiny fraction of our universe is shot in this image, and there's 5,500 galaxies. And not even in this little area that was this photo was taken are all the galaxies showing up. We can't see them all. So there's probably more than that 5,500. And so that number of 2 trillion galaxies is wrong. There are now estimates that there are 6 to 20 trillion galaxies. Now, Jess was putting together this slide, and I think... She thought I was joking, but she said, do you want all the zeros added on there? I said, yes, I want all the zeros added on there. I mean, look at that. That is a ton of galaxies, just mind-blowing. It's hard to, to wrap our mind around this. In Christ Jesus, our Savior is the one who created it all. What we can see, what we can't see. And he is the one who sustains. He is the one that keeps it all together. And so when we reflect on this, and I know it's, some, it's kind of you know, hard to get our mind around, how are we to respond to this? Well, let me give you a few. Take comfort that Christ, our God, is not a small God, mm-hmm. that He is powerful, and that He is in control of all things. Let us honor and thank Christ, our Creator. You know, I like to watch those shows on Netflix that uh, talk about our universe and planet Earth, I don't know why, but my kids make fun of me for watching this. They come down the steps like, Dad, why are you watching this again? But I just find it fascinating. All these different animals, all these different species. But the thing that's so frustrating in that, it's almost every episode, is that they never give credit to God. It's just always that it came through random chance. It just happened. That all this complexity, all this design came from nothing. No, it came through Christ. So let us give him honor in his creation. Let us not be arrogant. Christ is the one who sustains us. It's so easy to forget this. So easy to take this for granted. But we are sustained by Jesus Christ. That you and I right now, we are in this room. We are breathing because of Jesus. And then lastly, know you were created for Christ. Do you struggle to find meaning in your life? Do you struggle with purpose? Do you ask yourself, why am I here on earth? Take hold of this. You were created for him. Christ created you. And so in those dark moments, in those moments of doubt, where you're wondering, do I even matter? Know that your life has great meaning. Know that you have purpose and you were created to have a relationship with your creator, Jesus Christ. That you are to live for him. The way that you live, the way that you parent, what you do with your body brings him great honor and glory. But also know this, what you do in your life has great meaning and it has eternal significance. You matter. You have great purpose. You have great meaning. Now, as wonderful as verses 15 to 17 are, we also know that our world is not as it should be, that our world is broken, not because of any deficiency in Christ, but because of us, because of humankind's sin. And so now we turn our attention to verses 18 to 20, where we find that Christ is supreme over the new creation. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Again, our world is not as it should be. It is broken. There is sin. There is suffering. Paul would say in another letter that he wrote what we call the the book of Romans, that creation itself, picture this image, that creation is groaning, desiring to be reconciled and renewed. But here's what is almost hard to fathom and to understand when it comes to the ways that God works. Because what is remarkable is that this reconciliation and, and this renewal happens through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God's great concern for us and his grace for us is shown through his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, the supreme one, the one that created everything and who sustains it, enters our creation by coming to this earth living a life for around 33 years, a man of sorrow, a man who was suffered and mistreated. But then he goes to the cross and it's through the cross and through the power of his resurrection that he makes all things new, that he reconciles our relationship with God. This is the cosmic scope of the cross of Christ, to reconcile all things, Sometimes we just think about our own personal salvation, and we're going to get to that as wonderful as that is. But he's reconciling all things, our broken world, that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And so we look to that. This is the cosmic scope of the cross. Now, why do we believe that we will one day be raised? That yes, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, but, but how can we have confidence that we will have this new life? Because here's what you need to understand. You will die. I will die. But yet if we place our faith in Christ, this is how we have new life. But how do we have this confidence? It's because Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Now again, we find this term firstborn, which we looked at earlier, doesn't have to mean first as in chronology. Because Jesus wasn't the first person to come back from the dead. We think of you know, his friend Lazarus, for example. So Jesus raised many people back from the dead. So what this term means, firstborn from among the dead, is that Jesus is the first to be resurrected and to never die again. This term could actually be translated, it literally means this, that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead ones, pointing to the reality that others who are dead will be raised to life you will be raised to new life. And so with his death and resurrection, a new era was ushered in. Christ is supreme and he is Lord, not only over creation, but this new creation. And this new creation, the new heavens and the new earth includes the church. And what is the church? It's just those that had been reconciled by Christ. We here today, we are the reconciled ones. It's not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. He is now head over the church. He is supreme over us. And so all of this is just absolutely stunning. But Paul does something so interesting. He's been talking about these high and exalted things. He's been lifting up Christ. He's been trying to make him beautiful to us. Speaking that Christ is Lord over creation and the new creation. But then he drops it down and he narrows his focus, not on this cosmic scale, but to us. He brings the focus down to you. Look at verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And let's stop there. Now, why would Paul go back to these Colossians after speaking about all these wonderful things and then mention their former condition? Is he, is he trying to kind of heap all this guilt and shame on them that, you know, you, you saw Christ as beautiful, but now I'm hearing these reports. How dare you? You need to remember your, your condition. So he's laying this burden on them. No, what Paul is doing is reminding them of their condition before Christ's saving and reconciling work on their behalf. Because here's the thing that we need to understand, that when we see the beauty of Christ, when we see him high and lifted up, but also see the depths of our sin, this is when he is made most beautiful. This is when we give him the most glory. And what was our condition? It was one of alienation, that we were hostile to God. God created us in his image. He created us to have this relationship with him. He put these boundaries in place because he knows what's best for us to live and to flourish, but we wanted nothing to do with that. But it's worse than that. We wanted nothing to do with him. We want to be sovereign. We don't want to acknowledge how fragile our existence is, that he is the one that sustains us. What happens is we replace God with our self. And because of this, we have and we stand accused and guilty. We've alienated ourselves from him. But this is the great exchange that takes place at the cross. That Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the only person in history where no accusation could be said about him, he goes to the cross and he takes on our sin. We stain Christ with our sin, and our accusation, and our debt, and our guilt is placed on him, and he bears that for us. And now through faith in Christ, we don't rely on anything that we can do, but what Christ has done for us. When we put our faith in Christ, we can have that new relationship that all that sin and all that guilt and all that debt is removed. And here's the amazing thing. God will never bring it up again because when he looks at you, if you've been covered with the righteousness of Christ, he no longer sees your sin. Instead, when he looks at you, he sees you as beautiful. He sees you as holy because when he looks at you, he sees what his son did for you. Absolutely amazing. Now, how are we to enjoy this relationship? Paul goes on to verse 23. He says this in verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a servant. Now, we can read this where it says, if you continue in your faith, and it almost sounds like we can lose our faith, lose our salvation. But this would negate everything that Paul has said about the personal work of Jesus on our behalf. Now, what Paul is saying is here, here is that he fully expects these Colossian believers to continue in their faith. And by extension, he fully expects us to continue in our faith. Paul has no doubt about this. It's almost as if Paul were standing right here and he's saying to you, if you continue in your faith, and I know you will then stay focused on Christ Jesus. But here's also what we need to understand. You need to to realize this, that your saving faith is an enduring faith, okay? Your saving faith will be a faith that endures. Now, how does it endure? Because it's anchored in the gospel. It's anchored in Christ. These both go together. I want you to have confidence and assurance in that, that if you have placed your trust in Jesus, you have a faith that not only saves, but a faith that endures. How do you do that? You look to Christ. You're anchored in him. You see the beauty of Jesus Christ. As we end, I want to ask you two questions, because you're going to fall on one side or the other here. The first is this. Have you been reconciled to your creator and saviour? Has there been a point in your life, and maybe you're here today and you're kind of checking things out, we are so glad you're here. And we would love to have further conversations, but it may be this morning that you need to step over that faith line, that you need to put your faith in Christ, that you need to believe on Him. And the way to do that is to admit you're a sinner, admit that you've gone your own way, and now you're going to turn and follow Jesus. And in our time of invitation, we would love to pray with you. Or maybe after the service, you want to do that. Maybe kind of nervous to come up front. That's fine. But we would love to do that this morning. The second question is this. For those of us who have stepped over that line of faith and are following Jesus, do you need to shift your gaze back to the beauty of Jesus? Are there some things in your life, some circumstances in your life that are causing you to drift away from Jesus? to turn your your focus from him. Look back to him. Remind yourself of his love for you. Look to him and see his beauty of who he is, but also what he's done for you, The, the great lengths he has went to restore your relationship with him. Look to the cross this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we we thank you for this, uh, what many think is a hymn or a beautiful hymn. And Lord, we want to lift you up. Lord, we want to see the beauty of who you are, that you are the supreme one. Lord, not only of creation, but of this new creation. And Lord, that we get to participate in that because of your blood shed on the cross. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that maybe never made that decision, Lord, to follow you. Lord, I I ask, Holy Spirit, that through your working, Lord, you will draw them. Lord, they will make that decision to trust in you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, for us, Lord, that have made that decision, Lord, we can so easily wander. Lord, we can so easily shift our gaze, Lord, from you. Lord, help us if there's any sin, Lord, to repent of that. And Lord, to turn our gaze back to you. Lord, help us this morning. Lord, help us as we go on this week to see who you are. Lord Jesus, to see you as beautiful. Lord, we pray and we ask everything in your name. Amen.